Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Slate Plus members get an entire bonus episode of the show every week with all kinds of extra material, exclusive interviews, roundtables, and more of the crazy stuff we found while researching the show. Joining Slate Plus is also a great way to support this show and our other podcasts. If you like Slow Burn, help us make it. Slate Plus members also get their Slate podcast with no ads. Not even this one. Okay, here's episode eight of Slow Burn. This podcast contains language that may offend some listeners. In 2006, Greg Kading was a narcotics detective with the Los Angeles Police Department. On his 43rd birthday, he got a phone call from the Robbery Homicide Division. The LAPD was reopening a cold case, the 1997 murder of Christopher Wallace, the notorious B.I.G. They asked if he wanted to join the task force. Kading wasn't looking for a new assignment. I was already in this really good place. And I thought, well, now I'm going to come down here, and maybe this is a mistake. In the end, though, he decided to take the spot. I think what the overriding factor was that, hey, this is a really big, important, historic case. And if we do solve it, that's going to be worthwhile. A few days later, he got to look at the case files. There were a lot of them. I just kind of remember laughing, like, this is preposterous. You know, I knew it was going to take months in order to kind of catch up uh, um, on the investigative effort that had taken place for the previous nine years. So it was just daunting. It's like, holy smokes, this is a lot of work. In the days after Biggie's murder in Los Angeles, the police interviewed anyone they could find with a plausible connection to the case. Detectives spoke to Sean Puffy Combs, the CEO of Biggie's label, Bad Boy Records. They also talked to the bus driver whose route passed the scene of the shooting and clerks at the hotels where Biggie stayed at in L.A. They had the department's helicopter unit fly over south-central L.A. to look for the black Impala used in the shooting. They reviewed surveillance tapes at the hospital where Biggie was pronounced dead. Still, the case had gone cold. Here's Biggie's widow, R&B star Faith Evans, eight months after his murder. I don't... I mean, one at all tried to shame, you know, the LAPD, but it's like, like his murder as well as Tupac. How could, I don't understand how could they not, you know, have any leads. I'm sure they have a lot, 
maybe they're not following the right ones, you know. What leads should the Los Angeles Police Department have followed? One widespread rumor had it that Suge Knight of Death Row Records had put a hit on Big as revenge for Tupac Shakur's killing six months earlier. Maybe Biggie's murder was another drive-by of the long-running war between Bloods and Crips. Or maybe it was something else, something more explosive. A lot of people thought that crooked L.A. cops had been involved in Biggie's murder and that the LAPD was protecting them. Biggie's family came to believe there was something to that theory. In 2002, Faith Evans and Biggie's mother, Valletta Wallace, filed a wrongful death suit against the Los Angeles Police Department. Three years later, a judge found that the department had withheld evidence and forced the city to pay Biggie's estate more than a million dollars in legal fees. A mistrial was declared, and the case started over. In 2006, still under pressure from the wrongful death suit, the LAPD announced it was reopening its investigation into Biggie's murder. The detective who recruited Greg Kading for that investigation told him that the department had nothing to hide, that the LAPD was willing to implicate its officers if that's where the evidence led. He goes, we're going to go where the clues go. Whatever it is, it is. If there's dirty cops, fuck it, so be it. Let's get them out of here. It took Kading's task force months to sort through the previous investigations. The first year was just a lot of you know, putting our flow charts up on the walls, figuring out who's who and where they're at at this point in, in time. By late 2007, they began to focus on a Southside Crip named Dwayne Keith Davis, who went by Keefy D. Keefy D was a drug kingpin in Compton. In 1997, after a federal investigation, he was convicted on narcotics charges and served four years in prison. When he got released, he went right back into the drug business. That gave Kading and his task force an opening. We began to do wiretaps and controlled buys and built a case against him, an airtight uh, federal drug case against him. Kading used that federal case and a potential prison sentence of 25 years to life as leverage against Keefe D. So now he can mitigate that. He can cooperate with us, help us solve these crimes to the ability that he knows. On December 18th, 2008, Keefe D. agreed to talk to the LAPD. But what he said wasn't what Kading was expecting. Initially, our interest was, all right, tell us what you know about Biggie's murder. It's like, man, that one, that one wasn't us. Those were his words. That one wasn't us. Kading had been trying to find out who killed Biggie Smalls. Instead, he was about to find out who killed Tupac Shakur. What you're going to hear is the story of Kading's investigation, the last official inquiry into the deaths of Biggie and Tupac. I recently spent two hours talking to Kading at his home in Southern California. We covered his involvement in the case from start to finish. I've read a lot about these two murder cases over the past year. There are a lot of theories about who killed Tupac and Biggie. And to me, Greg Kading's seemed the most reasonable. But other people take issue with Kading's conclusions. We'll get to them later. Even if you accept Kading's version of events, there are plenty of unanswered questions about the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. There is no satisfying resolution here. Who killed Tupac and Biggie and why? Why has no one been charged in either man's murder? And what legacy did these two hip-hop icons leave behind? This is Slow Burn. 
I'm your host, Joel Anderson. This is episode eight, Dead Wrong. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 